The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Well, we're a little bit before 8 o'clock, but I'm going to go ahead and start. And I know that what that probably means in your mind is you think I might let you out early. <laughs> I, I was hoping to show you a copy of the book and tell you to go buy it in the bookstore, but they ordered it and it didn't come. So um, that's what it looks like. <laughs> So this is my most recent release. That's, that sounds pretentious, doesn't it? This is my most recent release. Um, and uh, came out in May, um, Finding the Love of Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And I'll just tell you up front, um, the reason that I wrote it was, uh, first of all, um, because I got tired of reading women's and guys, you're welcome here. So I'm going to, I'm, you're welcome. Um, uh, but I'm going to address some of my comments to women. Um, the reason I wrote it was in part because I was tired of reading books written for women about reading the Bible and having them miss entirely the story of Jesus. Um, <laughs> And so kind of read your Bible and you can get your act together. Or read your Bible and we'll go through all of this uh, and uh, find out sort of about God generically and really missing the realities of the way Jesus taught his disciples, including a woman, which I will talk about, uh, on how to read the scriptures. And so first of all, that and then... Um, secondly, to say to women that Bible reading and deep theology is for you. It's for you, and you're expected to be there. Jesus wants you there. And if we don't learn anything from the story of Mary and Martha, that's definitely something we should learn, that Jesus didn't say to Mary, Mary, you know, it's good, it's good for you to be a little bit Martha. You know, be a little Martha and a little Mary. He didn't say that. He said that there was one necessary thing, and Mary was doing it, listening to him. And so what I wanted to do was, first of all, help people understand that the gospel, which is the story of God's love, for redeeming love for his people is not simply in the New Testament. It's throughout all of Scripture. And then to help people see how to read Scripture the way Jesus read it. Because you remember when he read it, um, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old. And that's all he had. And so um, that's why I wrote it, came out in May, and that's what it looks like. Okay, got it? You may order it on Amazon or wherever your good books are found. <laughs> All right, so Luke 24, we're going to get to Luke 24 in a couple of minutes, but this is the testimony of uh, the two disciples, and I believe it was Jesus' uncle Cleopas. It's, we, it, we're told that that's who it was. And also, 
notwithstanding nice artwork you've seen over the years uh, uh, of two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it was probably his wife, who actually was named Mary. So Jesus' uncle, Cleopas, and his wife were headed back, headed back from Jerusalem after the crucifixion, before they knew about the resurrection, they're headed back home after the dashing of all of their plans and dreams. And Jesus joins them on the road and teaches them how to read the Bible. So that's kind of what we're going to do here a little bit tonight, and that's helpful for us as biblical counselors because we want our counselees to know how to read scripture. And, um, and I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus taught uh, how to read scripture, and we should do that as well. So they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And that's what we want to have for all of our counselees, right? That everyone, everyone that we talk to and point to the scriptures, point toward the scriptures, that they would read the scriptures and find their hearts being set, on, set ablaze. That only happens when you begin to read scripture the way Jesus taught them to read scripture. So let's pray, and uh, because I can't do that, it's something the Holy Spirit has to do, and uh, then we'll, we'll try to look at that a little more closely. So Father, uh, you are the one who sent your son and he is the one who taught how to read your Bible, your word, your scriptures. And so we pray now that you would do something that we can't do. What we can't do is open our own minds. What we can't do is enliven our own hearts. We can't do it for ourselves or our counselees, people that we're mentoring or discipling. And so we pray that you would grant us grace to do that um, through the power of your spirit and that you would even do that tonight. Begin tonight, Lord, I pray, a new work uh, in our hearts as we look at scripture and may our hearts be set ablaze, we pray in Christ's name, amen. This is ringing a little bit. Can you guys hear that? All right, so maybe it needs to just come down a tad. Thank you. So, do you assign scripture reading to your counselees? Yes. <laughs> right, and what are you hoping that they're going to see there? Um, one of the things, of course, that, uh, one of the ways that I think that people read scripture and not the ways Christ would want them to read scripture, but I think it's also the way that the disciples read scripture. You, you know that everyone Jesus surra was surrounding, was surrounded with, all of these people all were steeped in the Old Testament. They all read the Old Testament. They were very familiar with it, and they, um, they thought that they knew what the Old Testament said. They thought that what the Old Testament said was that the Messiah would come and redeem them, but not redeem them the way you and I think when I say redeem them. 
what they thought was that the Messiah would come and redeem the nation and kick out the Romans. And that's why on Good Friday, everything they thought they believed was crushed to the ground. They had no idea how what happened to Jesus could possibly have just happened. And honestly, I think a lot of times our counselees will read scripture and they can't believe their life is the way it is because they think that if they read their Bible and study, God will all of a sudden bless them in every way, right? That's kind of this quid pro quo thing. In other words, reading my Bible is like eating Brussels sprouts. Well, now, you know, when I was young, I hated Brussels sprouts, but now I love them because we're doing this other thing with them now, right? We're roasting them, putting balsamic vinaigrette on them, or, and it's wonderful. But used to think Bible reading is kind of like eating your Brussels sprouts, or it's like doing your algebra homework. And so you tell your uh, counselees, read your Bible, or you read your Bible, and you think somehow, if I read my Bible, then what that means is God's going to give me an A for the day. See, and that's wrong thinking. It's completely wrong thinking. This quid pro quo, this for that, I give you this, I give you Bible reading, and then you, God, are obligated to do X for me. One time I was counseling with a woman, and I asked her, how was your day? And she said it was a pretty rough day. And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? She said, well, a number of things, but I had a flat tire uh, on the way to work. And I said, I, I hate that. That's awful. She said, yeah, it was because I didn't read my Bible this morning. OK, that. Now, we can sort of chuckle about that a tiny bit, but don't you think that's really there in the minds of your counselees? Like, if I read the Bible, then God, it's kind of like God's going to give me an A for the day. He's at least obligated to make my day go well. And that's why I read it. I read it so that somehow God will bless me. Now, is it a blessing to read Scripture? Well, yes, of course it is. You will be blessed in the reading of it, but the reading of it will not make your day or your counselee's day or relationships or family or work go the way that they hope it will. What Bible reading will do for them is give them the faith, the faith and courage to face the day in light of God's great love for them in Christ. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do. Not make them think, okay, well, this is great. I read my Bible this morning, so God is obligated. It's kind of like spiritual karma. God's obligated to make my day go well. And we want to be very careful when we're counseling people that we don't give them that idea. Read your Bible and God will make everything work out. It's not magic, but it is there. It is powerful, and it is there to help them face the day, whatever might happen in the day. And we never know what might happen in any day, but to face it with faith and courage and in the knowledge that we're loved by God. So 
quid pro quo. WWHD, you remember WWJD, right? So what would Jesus do? Well, I think that most of the ways that people read the Bible, particularly stories in the Old Testament, but not, not solely in the Old Testament, is we read the Bible to find out what we're supposed to do. What would the heroes do? So you read Genesis and you try to figure out, um, well, how can I be like a hero? I want to be a hero. And that's so, it's rife in our in modern American evangelicalism. Read this scripture, read the scriptures and find out how to dare to be a Daniel or Abraham. Well, Abraham. Okay, so when should you be like Abraham? Should you be like Abraham when he's faithfully uh, marching up Mount Moriah? What about when he's saying that she's my sister? See, the deal with reading the Bible to try to find out what the heroes would do is that there's only one hero, and that's Jesus. And you're not supposed to read what Jesus has done to try to find out what you should do. You should read the life of Jesus to find out what he's done for you. So it's not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. Now, you might be saying, well, okay, Elise, but I mean, wouldn't it be a good idea to look at the life of Esther? Well, yes, kind of. Uh, yeah, look at the life of Esther. Um, when, when, she finally, when she's finally courageous, but what on earth is she doing still living in Susa with Mordecai? They should have left when the exiles left, but they stayed. Why? Well, we don't know. We know providentially because God was going to use her to deliver the nation. So do we want to be like Esther? You want to be like Esther married to a pagan king? See, this isn't a love story. We need to, we need to think about what's really going on there. So should I seek to be like Esther? Should I... You know, what about Rahab? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, yes, be like Rahab. Actually, it's, it's kind of funny to me because one of, I think it's even Matthew Henry, but I'm not sure, one of the old-time commentaries actually said that Rahab was not a prostitute. She actually was an innkeeper. Okay, so... <clears throat> See, what's, what's really amazing is, and, and this is what I want you to begin to hear, is this conference is about prodigals. The entire Bible is a story of God's love for prodigals. The entire Bible is a story of God's love for prodigals. Even the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. Because even though he didn't leave, he hated his father and only obeyed his father to get what he wanted. So the entire Bible from beginning to end is this love story of God coming to his people that he loved to draw them to himself. And then to, we can begin then to read 
the Bible, read the stories of the Bible, the characters in the Bible, read them as what they really are. You know? So it, it, is Moses a good guy? Well, at times, he shines. And at other times, what about Noah? Well, okay, he built an ark and God's favor was on him. But then there was that whole thing about it getting drunk and his daughters and all of that other business, right? I mean, there's, there's not hardly a person in scripture. Daniel would be one. But there's not hardly a person in scripture that you can look at and say, this is a person who isn't a prodigal. But what do we see? We see God coming time and time and time again, bringing love and redemption and forgiveness to his people. So we don't want, we don't want to teach our counselees to read the Bible asking the questions, what would the heroes do? All right? They are there, their narratives are true stories, and they are there to demonstrate one thing primarily, which is God's determination to save a people for himself. That's why they're there. That's why Esther's there. Esther's not there because she was great. Esther's there because we, want, we need to be able to see how a book like Esther that doesn't even mention the name of God. The name of God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. How a book uh, like Esther can be encouraging to us when we're in places where the name of God can't even be mentioned, and yet God is working behind the scenes to accomplish his redemption. That's the point of that book. But we miss it entirely when we tell women, young girls, be like Esther. No, actually don't. Um, what's another way that we tend to read scripture and it's the wrong way? Well, I call it the magic eight ball way. And that's kind of, when I was young, I mean, I know you guys are, you know, all holy and you were holy since you were little children. But uh, when I was young, I had a magic eight ball, you know. So I'd ask it, whatever stupid little girls, whatever questions we would ask, you know, shit, does Johnny like me? And it's like, not at this time, you know. <laughs> Sometimes people read scripture, it's like, it's kind of like a magic eight ball. So should I move to Atlanta? So then I read scripture to find out the answer to that. The answer to should I move to Atlanta is always no, by the way. But <laughs> kidding. <laughs> but um, that's, that's not why scripture is there. Does scripture give us direction for life? Yes, it does. But it does so in broad principles and not in uh, you know, should I wear an orange shirt today or not? Not like that. It's not like personal revelation. You know, we have to be aware of the fact that many of our counselees read scripture just like this. They read it like it's a crystal ball. 
And that's not what it is. There is one main story, one narrative. And we can go to scripture and glean wisdom, and we should. And look at what the Bible has to say uh, about the kinds of changes we're thinking about making. Get good counsel. The Bible tells us to do that. But then don't go to scripture and do one of these things. You know your counselees do that. So help them learn to read. Or we read scripture as though uh, it's kind of we would, we would read a newspaper for anybody who still reads newspaper. I don't know who that is. But anyway, read newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand and say, how do the headlines of the newspaper today prove that the Bible is true? Where do I see the Bible being verified by what's going on in the Middle East today. So we've got to not do that. Does that mean that God doesn't fulfill, fulfill prophecy? Yes, of course he does. He does fulfill prophecy, but I think, you know, if, if you study church history enough, the number of antichrists is a, as many as centuries as there are of the church. I mean, so let's not say, well, I know who the Antichrist is. We want to teach people how to read scripture properly. Now, <clears throat> how many of you believe that the Bible is actually God's word? It's God's word. Yes, good. M most of you, that's great. Um, <laughs> of people who believe that the Bible is actually the word of God, less than 20% read it more than every other day. Okay? Less than 20%. So let's just say 20%. Don't even read it more than every other day. We are in a time of great starvation for scripture. And, you know, to actually spend time in the Bible. And I personally am very thankful for a lot of what's going on on the Internet. <laughs> Not some things, but very thankful for a lot of what's going on on the Internet. There are a lot of young women, younger women, who have put up blogs and, uh, you know, mommy blogs. And here's how to study the Bible. She reads truth. All of that sort of business, it's great that they're reaching their, uh, their demographic. But, you know, seriously, we're in deep, deep weeds here. Because don't ever assume that your counselees even read the Bible more than every other day. I mean, do you even read the Bible more than every other day? Um, I happen to be an empty mess, nester, may God be praised forever. And um, what that means is that I have all the time I want in the morning, generally. I have all the time I want in the morning and so I can read through scripture and I can read commentaries and I can spend a lot of time. But you know, are your counselees actually spending time in scripture and are they doing so because they're hoping to 
that God will see them and he'll bless them or that they're trying to figure out how to be like Abraham or, you know, what the magic eight ball might have to say that day. Yeah, it's like I was reading my Bible the other day and I decided God wanted me to leave my husband. Wait, what? I mean, if you've been counseling at any time at all, you've heard something like that. And you go, wait a minute. I don't know. I, I, how did you get there? If we miss the true story of Scripture and what it's actually about, then we will come up with all sorts of ways to read the Bible that, that will be wrong. Or do you want your counselees to see all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation as one coherent narrative of love for prodigals from beginning to end. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is from the very beginning to the very end, from the garden, from before the garden, and God saying, let us make man in our image, and looking at, at the man and his wife, and it was good. From there, and, and the son going to the garden and walking with them every day, all the way to the very end, to Revelation, where the son is again with, with his people. Same story, in a garden, get that. Same story, from beginning to end. And we blow it when we pull it apart and don't let that narrative speak to us. So how were the disciples' reading habits changed? Now, you know that when Jesus uh, spent time with the disciples, at least five times that I can find, at least five times in the New Testament, he told them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die, and in three days I will rise again from the dead. Not every single time with the rise again part, but every time with I'm going to go up. Did they get it? I mean, at all? The only person that I think kind of got it was probably Mary of Bethany. She got it. That's why she's anointing his body for burial before he dies. But aside from that, nobody got it. Do you know why they didn't get it? Because they were reading the scriptures as though... It was about them and their glory story. That's what they were reading. They were reading it as though all of the Old Testament was about how the nation of Israel was going to once again be established and get rid of all of the pagan Gentiles. But that wasn't the story of it at all. It's not the story of it at all. And you know what's really shocking? When you look at the genealogy of Jesus, have you ever thought about the genealogy of Jesus? There are four women in the genealogy of Jesus, you know, depending on if you're looking at the genealogy of Joseph or the genealogy of Mary. There's four women. Who are they? Ruth, a Moabitess. So, uh, idol, idol worshiper, right? Rahab, the innkeeper, 
kind of cracks me up, actually, the way the Bible describes that the fact that she welcomed she welcomed the spies. Yeah, I bet she did. Um, <laughs> sorry. So Ruth and Rahab and Tamar, a woman who was raped, a victim of sexual abuse, a woman who was raped, and someone who's called the wife of Uriah. Also, another woman who was uh, at least, at least sexually abused. She had, you know, let's not, let's not say that Bathsheba was some sort of temptress, and that's why she's on the roof of her house bathing. She was, she was doing that because she had just, excuse me, she had just finished her menstrual cycle, and that was part of the law that she had to wash herself. Okay? And when the king says, you have to come to my house, you don't get to say, mm, not so sure. So at the very least, at the very least, she was a victim of sexual assault. Um, she may have been raped. Those are the people that God Listen, listen, listen. Those are the women that God chooses to be in the line, in the genealogy of the Son of God. Those women. See, let that sort of sink in. That's a good thing for women to know. Now, am I saying to you, so <laughs> let's all go be prostitutes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God uses broken women. And for, the, for women to even be mentioned in a genealogy is so unusual. So unusual. And those women in particular. All right? So um, there they are, Cleopas and possibly Jesus' aunt, Mary. Now you're saying, but wait, his mom's name is Mary. Yeah, it was. That's because Mary and Cleopas was brother and sister, and he married somebody named Mary. Okay? Don't, you know, don't get terribly confused. I'll tell you where you can look that up if you don't believe me. Uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, Dr. Boyce has an article on it, uh, uh, and you can access it at the Bible Study Hour. Um, who were the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He's convinced it's Cleopas and Mary. Now, why am I making a big deal about that? I'm making a big deal about that because I want you to know men and women, that women were taught by Jesus how to read and interpret scripture. I'm gonna say it again. Women were taught by Jesus, not just Mary of Bethany, but his aunt was taught by Christ how to read and interpret scripture. That's a really important thing for women to know. Now, you're probably wondering right now, well, golly, Elise, you, you sort of sound like you're not a complementarian anymore. Well, I am, 
and I believe in uh, male leadership in the church and male leadership in the home. Although my husband's here, so he might stand up and scream liar. But I, <laughs> I do, I, 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 I assent to that. Uh, but it, it's just important for us to really begin to see that women, you're invited into this discussion. You're not just invited in, you're expected to be there. He wants you there. You're welcome there. All right. So do you, have, do you want them to see it as one coherent narrative of, of love from beginning to end and on the road to Emmaus and back to Jerusalem again? We learn to read scripture on, the res, on resurrection day. Now you remember what's going on. What's happening here is Mary and Cleopas and if you don't want it to be Mary, then fine, don't make it Mary. Uh, two disciples, one of them is named. They're on their way from Jerusalem, having just seen, Cleopas having just seen his nephew crucified, the one he thought was the Messiah. And he's on his way back, and probably with Mary, and there are places where it talks about the fact that she's part of the group of women that followed with Christ to support him in Luke 8. Um, so you've got these two disciples on the way back after discovering, finding out quite horribly that all of their dreams, every way that they had ever read scripture and then tied it to the Messiah, to Jesus, after discovering that that was wrong. They've just wasted three years of their life. Not counting, of course, the fact that this was their beloved nephew and that somehow the Romans were still in charge. How did that happen? So what does the Bible tell us in Luke 24? Luke 24 is one of the most important passages of scripture in all of the Bible. And if you want to read and find out how Jesus read the Bible, and how he wanted his followers to read it, then read Luke 24. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that's interesting, because Jesus is making a statement there, which is why I sort of went off about how you read the Old Testament and it's not just about morality tales. Jesus said that the writings of Moses and all the prophets, and then later on he includes the Psalms, in other words, all of the Old Testament canon, he said that the way to interpret them is by being about him. Jesus thought the Old Testament was about him. Well, you know, if that didn't just come from somebody who just rose from the dead, you could say, hmm, got kind of an ego on you there, buddy. But he just rose from the dead, and now he knows they're ready to hear it. All along, he's been saying it. 
I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to go up and die. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. Over and over and over again, he said it, and they never once listened. One time, Peter listened, and he said, may it never be. And what does Jesus do to him then? What does he call him? Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. See, they didn't know how to read their scriptures. And again, all they had was the Old Testament. The New hadn't even been written yet. And you know what's really interesting? When you read the New, there's so many allusions and direct quotations and stuff from the Old, it's because they learned from him how to read it. And now they're reading, and boy, they make connections I would never make. They make the most amazing connections when you start, you know, go through, when you're reading through the New Testament sometime, look up, because in your Bible there's always going to be uh, references to the old. Go back and read where they pulled that from. And you'll be like, no, that, no, that doesn't mean that. But see, Jesus taught them how to read it. And we need to read it that way as well. So he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Would your counselees say that when they read scripture, their hearts burn within them? Would you say it? It's like, look at that. There he is. I didn't even know like that. Knowing that from beginning to end, he's there all the time bringing his chosen people, which includes you, all y'all, bringing you into his church. Later on, So, you know, basically here's the story, Mary, Cleopas, walking down, Jesus joins them. They don't know it's Jesus. He opens opens their minds to understand the scriptures, which is a good thing. And then they, they get to Emmaus. They say, come in, it's late, come in and have dinner with us. He breaks bread, and he's known to them in the breaking of bread. I've heard it said that maybe when he broke the bread, they saw the nail scarred hands. And then they knew who it was. But he's known to them. And then the most amazing thing is they get up. They've just traveled probably seven miles. They get up and walk back to Jerusalem because now they've got something to say. And it's not just our lives are over. Now it's here's how to read it. The whole thing's come alive. It's marvelous. Check it out. And then Jesus, in his way, just appears in the room in his resurrected body. And you know, what's really interesting is he wants them to know he's not a ghost because they're, you know, they're hi- the, the disciples are hiding. And so Jesus just appears in the room. And um, he, he doesn't knock on the door and wait for them to open it. He just appears. And... Um, he says, uh, do you have anything here to eat? Now, why is he doing that? Why is Jesus asking 
for fish and chips. Because he wants them to know that he's there in a resurrected body just like theirs. He's not a ghost. Okay? He's flesh and blood. And so he says, do you have anything here to eat? Oh, we've got some fish. Okay, and he ate it in front of them. Means something. And then he does the most marvelous thing. He sits down and has a conversation with them about how to read the Old Testament. This is what they say. This is what he said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, but you guys couldn't hear it because you had all these plans about who was going to sit on your right hand and your left. These, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses, first five books, the Prophets and the Psalms, what that meant was the entire body of the Old Testament scriptures, that everything written about me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's what changed them. Then he spent the next 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God and how to find it in the Old Testament. That's why they were then able to write the new. Otherwise, they never would have written it. That's why on the day of Pentecost, they're no longer afraid. Yes, the Holy Spirit fell and they were emboldened, but they had already had their hearts set ablaze because now they understood the scriptures. So they were understanding them before as being all about them and their glory story and what Jesus did. He said, no, actually, it's all about me. What did Jesus tell them that the scriptures were about? That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. See, now he says that that's what the Old Testament is about. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Now, what is repentance and forgiveness of sins? We have a word for that. What's it called? The gospel. What all the scriptures teach is the gospel, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to Israel. That's not what it says. To all nations. See, listen, this sort of multi-ethnic thing that you're hearing a lot about in church lately, that's not like social justice. That's the gospel. All nations, all nations, everyone. I'm going to hop off that. Um, Should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The gospel, which is God's love for prodigals, is the message of the entire Old Testament. And if you teach people to read it that way, it will come alive. It It will absolutely blaze to life. So they needed their reading habits changed. What did they need to see? The Messiah's necessary suffering and triumphant resurrection. You can find it in the old. God's ageless call to people to turn to him and receive forgiveness. The message is for both genders and all nations. All nations. So all nations will come in. And in the new Jerusalem, 
brothers and sisters, all nations will bring the riches of their nations, their nation's cultures, into the New Jerusalem. And you're going to look around, and there will be people there from every tribe and tongue and nation. And how do we know that? Because that's what John saw. Well, how did John know that there were people there from Scandinavia? Because he heard them and saw them. So when I get to the New Jerusalem, I'm still going to have my DNA. Hopefully, I'll have a resurrected body. But I'll... I'll still have my DNA, and I will still be me, but more me than I've ever been. And whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your culture is, you're going to bring that in. All of, the, all of the riches of all of the nations will come in and be offered there. It'll be beautiful. And you know what's going to be really great? We're going to love it. You're never going to meet anybody you don't like. Won't that be cool? Sort of automatically love everyone. That'll be lovely. The Spirit will empower this proclamation, the proclamation of this message. Listen, it's very easy for people who are homogenous, people who look just like each other, to get together in a, some sort of a group and call themselves the church. You know what it takes the Holy Spirit to do? To get people to come together who don't look like each other. And in the modern American church, what we have done over and over and over again is separate people out. Okay, so all of the old gray-haired ladies, you meet over here. And then all of you people, all the young people, you meet over here. And do you see what I'm saying? That's exactly anti-gospel. Gospel is the Holy Spirit will make you love people who don't look like you or act like you. And here's just an aside. White Northern Europeans, when we get to the New Jerusalem, will be in the minority by far. So you better get used to it. You'll love it then. Probably would love it now. So, <clears throat> what did the Lord do? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So, they need to see. We need to see him. And then we can say, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus was known to them in the breaking of bread and he opened their minds to understand. So, Here's the question. Do we read the Bible the mistaken way that they did? Do your counselees read the Bible the mistaken way that they did? Have we ever been able to say that the Lord opened the scriptures to us and our hearts have blazed with zeal? It's like sometimes I'll be studying and I'll see Jesus in some obscure passage and I'll go, are you kidding? This is so great. Look at how powerful you are thousands and thousands of years ago. You inspired this guy to write this thing because I would know that that's you. See, that builds faith in my heart to know if he, if he sort of can keep all that together, then my life is in very faithful hands. So, to the religious elite, he said, 
See, Jesus opened the, their eyes to see him in their entire history. To the religious elite, he says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's not discounting that, but then he says an amazing thing that left them dumbfounded. He said, and it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures because you think that if you read the scriptures, you're going to have life, but you're missing the point entirely because it's not actually about you and your life. It's about me and my life. He goes on to say, and they say, well, you know, we have Moses. And he says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. That's a shocking statement. Isn't that a shocking statement? Jesus, who was very familiar with Old Testament writing, I mean, you remember he, um, I'm trying to think of where it is. I want to say Luke 3, but I'm probably wrong. Luke 4. He goes into the synagogue one day, and he picks up a scroll, and he begins to read. And he reads from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the cap. You know what's really interesting? See, he reads this whole passage, and then he says, That's me. Today, <laughs> today, that's been fulfilled in your hearing. And what did they do? They, did they go... They got up and chased him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a cliff. So it wasn't really good news. <laughs> you know what I think? I think Jesus could have walked into that synagogue and picked up any scroll that was there and said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus, Moses wrote about Jesus. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Because everything he wrote is about me. Well, where did Jesus, where did Moses write about Jesus? Let's just look at this real quickly, and I'm sure most of you could do this, but let's just go through them really quickly. Well, first of all, in creation, in the garden, God said, let, what's that second word there? Who is the us? The Trinity, right? So most, most people believe that that word us there is the Trinity, which is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Son is there at the very beginning. He actually is the one by whom the worlds were created. He is the word that spoke all things into being. So God said, let us make man in our image. And what that means for women is that you're made in the image of God. You are equal in essence to men. That's your ontology. That's your fancy word for the night. Your ontology is that you are equally created in the image of God as any man. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have roles. We do. But we are equally created in the image of God. And God looks at his creation and he says it's what? Good. See, his creation of man and woman, male and female, was good. And then get this. 
They heard the sound of God. Now, of course, this is right after the fall, but this is something that they were used to. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, who is that? I propose to you that that's Jesus. Wouldn't have called him Jesus. You'd call him the son. But there he is because John tells us that Jesus is always the one that manifests the Father. He's always the one that shows the Father. So that's Jesus, and he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day with his naked subjects, Adam and Eve, and nobody thinks anything is weird about it. Wouldn't that be something? Wow. Unashamed? Can you imagine standing before the creator of the universe and being completely unashamed? So they had amazing fellowship with God. And then the most amazing thing happens. They fall into sin. Eve eats. Her husband's with her. He sees her. He eats as well. And then God comes to them, and he speaks to the serpent and curses the serpent. He speaks to the woman and pronounces relationship curses upon her. But then he also brings to her a great promise. Because right at the time when you could say, well, we've blown it. It's over. God's plan, done. Right then, when you could say that, God comes at the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 and gives what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first declaration of the good news, the first declaration of the gospel, which is really shocking words. Through you, Eve, woman, will come the seed, which doesn't really make sense, will come the seed of the Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent. So right on the heels of her fall into sin, God, the son, comes to Eve and says, all is not lost. You will give birth to a deliverer. Now, she did through her line thousands of years later. She probably thought Cain was going to be the deliverer, which is probably why he had the problems that he had. But anyway... <laughs> Through, through that broken woman, he promises salvation for the whole earth, for the whole earth. Isn't that marvelous? That's good news. Well, then we have Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and we won't talk about Noah and everybody else in between time, but we have Abraham and Sarah, and they're promised a child, but as you know, uh, that years have gone by and they haven't had any child and so Sarah comes up with this really great idea and her idea is that she's going to give her Egyptian maid to her husband to impregnate. Now that also is sexual abuse. That girl didn't have any choice. So then when she turns up pregnant, her um, uh, Sarah hates her. She's pregnant. And she hates Sarah. So she runs off into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, she's pregnant. She's a slave. She's a runaway slave. She has no rights. She's an Egyptian. She has nothing. She's going to maybe give birth. Maybe she'll die before she does. 
Who comes to her? What's his name? Jesus. Yes. See, it's the angel of the Lord. And then later on, she calls him the Lord, and he doesn't correct her. It's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes and says to her, gives her promises about how God is going to use her, and she is the first person in Scripture that names God. She says, you are a God of seeing. You care for me. So she names him that. It's really beautiful. And then, of course, later on, we have finally um, Sarah, who laughed and said she didn't laugh, you know. And, oh, yes, but you did laugh. I didn't laugh. Oh, yeah, you did. But it doesn't matter because you're going you're gonna to be the one that I will fulfill my promise to. You want to get that? See, understand that. God loves the prodigal. Because, yeah, good. So, finally, Isaac, whose name means laughter, he goes up on Mount Moriah with uh, Abraham. And you know the story. Abraham is going to sacrifice him. And... God stops him. Where was Mount Moriah? Do you know where Mount Moriah actually is? It's the city of Jerusalem. Same mountain, same place. Interesting, right? So you got one, you got Abraham offering a son in Jerusalem. And then God stops him because there's really a better son to be offered. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. But I want you to know something. See, Mount Moriah was actually where Jerusalem is, but outside the gate of Mount Mount Moriah, outside Jerusalem's gate, is where the dump was. That's where Jesus got sent, because all of your sin was laid on him, and he couldn't be sacrificed in the holy city. He had to be sacrificed outside the gate. Do you see Jesus there? So like when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, we don't say, I want to be like Abraham. No, actually, you fall on your face and say, thank you, God, that you gave up your son, your only son, the son you loved, and threw him on the ash heap for me. Thank you. Like that. Um, You know the story of Moses in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Who is that? Jesus, the son The Lord was with him. I am with you. I have heard the cries of my people in slavery. I will come to them. I will use you to deliver them. Can't use me. I can't talk. Mm, I made your mouth. Can't use me. All right. I'll use your brother. Do you hear the forbearance and patience and kindness of God? How about... Deliverance from evil, excuse me, from Egypt. Jude 5 is a shocking passage. It says, I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. See, who was it that was working in the whole Exodus? What's his name? Jesus. Right. So the point is not be like Moses. The point is see Jesus work. Okay. What about the rock in the wilderness? Paul says a shocking thing as well. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Who was that rock? That rock was Christ. It's him. 
Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. See, Jesus is the prophet. That's why when they were asking Jesus, who are you? They said, are you that prophet? That's who they're talking about, this prophet. Or what about as David penned the Psalms? I want you to, when you read the Psalms, read it like it's Jesus' playlist. He sang them all the time. He knew them. That's why when he's on the cross, he can recite them. He knows they're about him. You are my son, today I have forgotten, I have begotten you. Or sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Do we read the Bible the mistaken way that they did? The only way that the Bible will bring us joy is if we read it as Jesus said it was to be read, as one coherent story of his redemptive love for his people, all of whom are prodigals. Hearing that the Old Testament is about Jesus changes our relationship to the Bible. So many Christians read the Old Testament and they go, what on earth does this have to do with me? I mean, seriously, come on. Sacrificing some goat, right? Burning up your crop, crop, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with Jesus. It changes from it from being about us and our kingdom to being about him and all he's done to bring his kingdom here. See, it's all about your kingdom come, your will be done, still today. And you know what the great news is? We know that it will be. Why? Because I can look 6,000 years in the past and see how he's done it all along. Because Jesus said that the entire Old Testament contained his gospel message, we need to discern whether what we're reading is law telling us what to do or gospel telling us what he's already, already done. That's a really important thing for us to learn to do. When we read a passage, we say, who is the subject of the verbs? Is it God or is it me? If it's me, it's law. If it's God, it's gospel. And just understand that that's how I need to learn to read. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So, Lord, open our eyes. Amen? Help us read the Old Testament the way Jesus read it. And then when you read the Old Testament, it's not like, uh, I'm stuck in Leviticus again. Not that. It's, and if you don't know how to do it, there's so many great mm, commentaries. Or just get the Gospel Transformation Bible, ESV, Gospel Transformation Bible. Just read the notes, and they'll tell you how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay? And, or... You could buy that book. All right, I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for our time that we've had together. We pray you would open our eyes so that we would approach your scriptures not like a chore to be done, not like it's magic that we're going to hope that somehow we're going to read it and figure stuff out, but Lord, that we will see that it's you loving us for thousands and thousands of years from the beginning of time that it's you loving us and bringing us to your kingdom. So we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD, all rights reserved. 
More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.